0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Dr. Yel Ziegler and I held a special event in Matan's Jerusalem branch, in front of a live audience to mark reaching 100 episodes of the podcast. The following is a recording of that conversation where we spoke briefly about the podcast's origins and mostly about teaching Tanakh in the modern world. This event ran longer than our usual 30-minute format, but we decided to put it up in full form on the feed. See the show notes for timings of different sections of the conversation. Happy listening. I just wanted to thank Matan, uh, for enabling this project to happen, not just this evening, but the whole project of the the podcast. Uh, I also want to thank all those who make the podcast possible, uh, sponsors uh, in all different shapes and forms. I'll also just add that all sponsorship is always incredibly helpful. Uh, it really enables us to keep putting out great content and to keep growing and and having the ability and the bandwidth to keep thinking and, and taking on uh, new projects. Uh, and I also really want to thank and I'm saying this also for those who will be listening who are not just physically with us today I want to thank all the guests who come on to the podcast and really graciously give of their time uh, it's it's so it's so not a given uh, this is you know people are are giving of their time tartte <laughs> mashma uh, and I really appreciate and and mostly You know when people can't join, they're they're sad that they can't join. They're like, okay, write me back in three months. Or uh, and mostly people, you know, they get an email from me and they're just they're excited about it. So I really appreciate all the people who have been guests and will be guests on the podcast. And of course, ultimately, I want to thank all those who listen uh, and who make this project something. Uh, really worth continuing on uh, on a weekly basis. So, a growing number of listeners. A growing number of listeners, and I watch that number. I watch it every week <laughs> uh, to see what's happening, to gain a pulse of uh, of what's working or what's not working. So, that's just some opening opening things. Uh, I guess I really wanted to start by by telling a little bit about the story of how the the podcast began, uh, and it was sort of a uh, a a perfect storm of a number of factors, uh, unbeknownst to me before COVID hit, uh, a, a lovely uh, a lovely couple had really wanted to put Matan out there through the podcast medium, and they had donated equipment uh, to Matan to to do podcast recording. The equipment was in the cupboard. <laughs> uh, if I have the story correctly, it was in the cupboard waiting for. Uh, waiting for the right person to come and claim it Uh, and I was at home in the winter of sort of the second COVID year and I had at that point she was still a pretty small baby. I was a student much of the week and we had moved back to the Gush area after an unsuccessful attempt at living in the south and I was honestly trying to find myself a little bit professionally and my husband, and I'm not embarrassed to say as a loving wife that most of the good ideas in my house actually come from my husband, that, <laughs> that my husband said to me, you know, I really think that you should start a podcast and we're big podcast fans we listen all the time we it's just it's always he we we, he and I listen to very different kinds of podcasts but we both uh we're both big big podcast fans and he said to me I really I really think like you have this in you I think that this would be like a good medium for you and so I thought a little bit more and then I approached uh, I approached Chaya and and that's sort of where where it began. Uh, and she said, "Well, it happens to be we have all this equipment. <laughs> if you can figure out what to do with it, then then maybe this will be a go." And so the first uh, the first ten episodes, we actually had somebody else, a lovely woman, who helped us produce, and she sort of did a lot of handholding and helped me learn how to use the equipment and sort of the basics of editing. And after those episodes, uh, I took over that those those aspects myself. We still work with an with an editor who's. Does an amazing job, and uh, and I really appreciate them as well. But the sort of the technical and the editing sort of is me and and another person. That's sort of the team, and uh, and essentially what happened is that we started off sort of doing shorter series, and then and then a whole bunch of episodes. And we decided to go into into the Parsha theme. That was uh, at the encouragement of uh, of also people who love and support Matan, and it was a very good suggestion. And I guess i'll I'll just say for me that I love podcasts. Um, I you know Ellen and I have spoken about this. we feel very differently i as the years have gone on i I feel more and more embarrassed in frontal teaching like there's something about it that I feel is much more um, vulnerable and exposed and exposing. and I think also through I work with couples and women, both as and also as Amarjuchat Kalot, and there was something about that the one-on-one format that I sort of started to love very much. Uh, There's also something very alluring about being able to talk Torah in your sweatpants. And that's not something that should be minimized. All those who taught through Corona also know how that was a gift. Um, So, so there's something about the the intimacy of a podcast conversation with somebody, but that you also get to to reach a lot of people, uh, and even more people than you would reach in a classroom. That that really that really appeals to me, and I, get, I think also that I like the role of midwifing, as opposed to always having to be the one who is creating all aspects of it I love being able to sort of like midwife or even sometimes birth it along with somebody else so I feel like as, as this has developed like those are those are roles that has sort of felt more more natural to me over time and so it's a it's a medium that I don't know, for me, maybe even be, maybe my favorite at this point uh, in time. Well, you're
1: really good at it, Yosefa. And I'll take this opportunity <laughs> on behalf of Matan and all of your listeners who love you to thank you for all the time and effort that you put into it. Because I just got back from the States. I don't know if you can see how jet-lagged I looked. Those people who are listening clearly cannot. But but one of the things that I, I heard most on my... Uh, on my trip in the United States, was about the Matan podcast, about how uh, how much people love it and how much it adds to their weekly experience, generally preparing for Shabbos, but not always, right? Because, you know, that's just an easy way to uh, to be accompanied by Torah, right? And I think we at Matan really feel that we're happy to use many different media for, you know, spreading Torah. That's definitely something we started out, of course, you know, like like the whole world with frontal teaching and, and we still really value the Beit Midrash and the ability to be in a classroom together and especially after Corona, I think we particularly yeah. value the experience of live teaching. But at the same time, I think we've really grown to realize, especially since Corona, how valuable the different media are for spreading Torah and perhaps... The most accessible way for us to to, to get Torah out there the way that is most accessible for other people to, uh, to, to to experience matan Torah is really through the podcast and not only do you get to experience Yosefa every week, but each of her guests that she brings on each of whom I think brings a whole world of knowledge and, and a new direction and new ways of of, of looking at things and I, I think that um, from what i 've been hearing around the world, I think the podcast media medium has been really a very, very wonderful one for Matan and for Torah and and for spreading Torah in the world. So I I think that this is a a great reason to celebrate, to have this uh, 100th podcast uh, marker.
0: You know, I think that something I was thinking about on my way here is that in a world that has become so visual, something that I love about the podcast is that it goes against that grain. I mean, there are podcasts out there that are taped and go up on YouTube and that has its own merits. But I recently was realizing I listened there's a particular podcast that I've been listening to that I really really love it's not a Torah podcast and I realized recently that I have no idea what the host looks like I feel like she and I are very close like I mean I've really I've been listening to her a lot she speaks about ideas that are really close to my heart it's Barry Weiss by the way I'll just share that out there but um, and I realized that I have I, I would never know what she looks like if she walked by me in the street and so I, I I looked her up and I said to my husband we were in the car together he looked her up and I said that's so counter Cultural right now that like i feel that i've i've heard so many thoughts in this person and i i i really i feel like there's like an intimacy there but i have no idea what she looks like and there's something a little bit about that that like the podcast medium is almost like countercultural today to the visual culture that we have that also makes me uh, love it very much it's like how people can think that i'm a very calm person because i have a very calm voice but really you can come (laughs) to my house at six in the afternoon and you'll discover something else (laughs) What we thought to do this evening was sort of discuss some questions surrounding teaching Tanakh. I'll also just say, just to sort of make order here, which is that Yael, Yael was my teacher uh, when I was a student in Matan, which was 13 years ago, 14 Bad at math, so I was a student of Yael's, and uh, I guess over the years, sometimes the 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 gap, right, it can sort of close over time, and so I appreciate Yael very much as someone who's really like helped me and helped me grow also in the world of uh, of Tanakh study and Tanakh teaching. And so we thought to discuss some questions. I'm going to pose them to Yael, but on this occasion, I'm also going to answer some of them myself as well. Uh, so, so we'll start with that, and, and, and then we also would love to open up, if anyone else has questions that they want to ask, uh, we'd love to hear, hear that also. Okay? Great. First question I have for you, Yael, is what initially or still draws you to Tanakh study? And I would say in more than other realms, right? We, you and I both are, we both dabble in all different realms of, of Torah study, but what is it that sort of got you hooked into the world of Tanakh?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that, for me that's not a very hard question because I think that today, studying Tanakh today in the land of Israel has has something so unique about it. I mean, aside from the ability to go out into, you know, and, and in Israel and do all sorts of tiulim, which shows you the Tanakh coming to life and allows you to experience the Tanakh in a very visual and experiential way. Aside from that, I think so many of the topics also that the Tanakh deals with are so relevant for what we're dealing with today in Israel. Um, You know, this also came up all the time on this previous trip to America. So, in one of the shuls uh, where I spoke, um, the the rabbi wanted to have an afternoon discussion with me, and the discussion that he wanted to have was: um, Does the the Jew of today look similar or different to the biblical Jew? Right, that was his question, and basically, I think what he was particularly interested in was the world of halacha. Right, how much does the practice of the modern Jew look like the practice of the Jew in biblical times? And of course, when we talk about biblical times, we're talking about a very broad period in history. But you know, I said to him, I said, you know, it's a it's a question that I can answer, but the answer is going to be filled with gaps, right? Because really, the Tanakh is not so interested in the daily life and the daily ritual life of the individual Jew. The Tanakh is much more interested in nation building. It's much more interested in what it means to create a society, a healthy society, a viable society, a religious society, a society that is based on on equity and justice and fairness and morality. And those issues, you know, it doesn't mean that that there weren't people practicing halacha, you know, in this case, we have a lot of absence of evidence, which, as we know, doesn't always mean evidence of absence, right? Doesn't mean they weren't practicing halacha. It just means that that's not really what the Tanakh is interested in. What the Tanakh is interested in is issues of leadership, issues of um, how to create a welfare society, right? Uh, What it means to be uh, uh, a society that goes into war and maintains faith, right? What it means to set up an economic system that is one that reflects a, both a, a sense of, of, of justice and to create equity in society, but at the same time to have society have incentives, to move forward, and all of these questions are questions that occupy us today, right? You know, and there's so many, even even just like the, the, the question of unity, right, and which is obviously one of the main questions that is on our mind today. I'm not saying we're doing it well, but I'm saying we are thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. We must be thinking about it, and what, because we're thinking about all these issues, we look very much like the biblical Jew. I think that that actually probably represents a, a difference between what's going on in your average Israeli um, you know Jew and your average American Jew what kinds of things are you thinking about in your uh, daily quest to live a Jewish life so for me, I think I guess the, the the answer to sum it up in in one word is is relevance. there is so much today about learning Tanakh that is so deeply relevant to what we're thinking about today as, uh, uh, you know, as a nation who's really given this great opportunity for the first time in almost 2,000 years to rethink the central issues of, of the Tanakh.
0: Right, so you're saying that essentially what draws you into Tanakh today is that in a funny, ironic way, were more similar, at least in our core thoughts and what occupies our minds and hearts to what they were thinking in biblical times than perhaps what the, was occupying their life all the years in, in the more exiled existence?
1: Well, certainly to what the Tanakh is is, is showing us. I don't know yeah, really no, what know. they were thinking yeah. about in their daily life. And there are, there is um, there is ritual practice. It's, it's actually quite different, though. Most of the time they are thinking about things like korbanot and mm-hmm. things that also chagim, shabbat, General things that have a more communal uh, experience to them. Um, so we, we, you know, so it's not obviously today we're also keeping halakha and you know, the, and and our daily life looks similar to the daily life of a practicing Jew in America. Yeah, but it's like
0: the core philosophical issues. Yeah, but, saying are are really are really similar.
1: Yeah, and we're rethinking them, and so they become that much more interesting and that mm-hmm. much more central, and they rise to the they rise to the forefront of our national existence. So that, I think that that makes some of these Tanakh questions really critical today. Mm
0: -hmm. It's interesting when I think about sort of what brought me into the Tanakh world. Now I said that I I also love learning halakha. It's maybe for a related reason, but so I know you also share this love. I I love story. Uh, And so I always have a, a sort of a soft spot for narratives in Tanakh more than other kinds of texts, whether it's, you know, more poetic or, or legal. I feel, I mean, I think story is at the basis of all humanity. That's how we process the world. It's how we, that's how we make meaning. Uh, and while there are many people who feel that they sense story, let's say in Talmudic literature, uh, for me, there's nothing that tops story narrative in Tanakh and actually what really brought me back into Tanakh learning was when I was initially exposed to literary study of Tanakh and it actually happened in the opposite context it happened in a literature class in college but that's for me definitely one of like the hooks that got me really into Tanakh learning when I realized that well uh, their related skills, and I can use them because uh, I, I both studied I studied writing and I studied Tanakh more in in college. And so for me, narrative is something that just feels to me it's swimming in an ocean, which is like my favorite physical activity. It's just sort of something that's endless, and there's just an endless amount of meaning and an endless amount of of layers that you can get involved in. And so that that's one thing that really um, hooks me into Tanakh learning. And and the other one is that. And this is a, a belief piece of mine that I really believe that like the, the spiritual DNA of Am Yisrael is embedded in Tanakh. And so I sort of feel that when I learn Tanakh more than when I learn Gemara and even Halakha sometimes, I feel like, again, I'll use the image of swimming. I feel like I'm swimming in something that is so... Primal to who we are, that to me, it's just a constantly ex- inspiring sp- experience. You know, whether I'm teaching a uh, Mizmor of Tehilim. And I'm like, well, this is what people were saying for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, there's something about that that just sort of like never ceases to, to move me. So, so that, that to me is part of it. And, and when I learn, and again, I'm not saying anything negative, God forbid, about, about learning Gemara, but it just doesn't have the same impact for me. I tried for many years to, to force myself. <laughs> to be equally passionate, but it didn't work. Uh, and uh, and I just, there's something so primal to me about about Tanakh that I, nothing, nothing parallels it uh, for me at all. I don't know. I know you're also a lover
1: of story. Uh, yeah, you know, when you were saying it, I was thinking that in the past, let's say, 10 years, I've really found a lot of love for biblical poetry. Mm-hmm. And particularly those sections of Tanakh that do speak to, some of the events that I think really are um, current events, in other words, you know the the, the sections of Tanakh that talk about Shivat Zion, or that uh, allude to um, these this period in history, I, mean, I can't get through, you know through certain passages of Tanakh, without feeling just overwhelmed by some of the contemporary relevance. Some of you, I see some of you in here, were with me in Yeshayahu, right? When we did uh, the Pirkei Nechama in Yeshayahu. And I have almost this daily experience, uh, well, I actually do have this daily experience of sitting in traffic. Anybody else, anybody else, right? So this daily experience of sitting in traffic, and I'm, I'm thinking of Echaya Yashvavadad Ha'ira Bati'am, right, I'm thinking of Yerushalayim, which is an empty city, a lonely city. And then I'm thinking of how Yeshayahu counters that image by promising Yerushalayim that one day you're going to wake up and say, Tsarli Hamakom, gishali Ve'esheva, right? Like, this place is too narrow for me. Move aside. I need some room. I need some living space. And sometimes, you know, when I am going through traffic, every day I say to myself as you know as I'm driving along I mumble to myself hamakom." it's our bracha <laughs> right so so I I have found I think they a are lot widening
0: of, uh, the road so you're saying the widening of the road of 60 is really a prophetic fulfillment of Ishael
1: it is absolutely <clears throat> but you know what's going to happen this is, is a that a nice perspective I'll one think about year it next from, it's too little too late right so you know they widen the road and by that point Gushesion has doubled and thank god you know more and more people have cars. You know, when I moved to Etzion, I think many families didn't have one car. And now a lot of people have more than one car, and that's our bracha. It's a bracha of a, you know, of a society that has grown and has prospered. And these are wonderful things to see. And I think that I see the so many of the prophetic promises and the you know, even Mismore Tihilim that describe the some really, I think uh, remarkable visions. I see them coming to life, and I, I think to myself, you know, how, how can one? How could first of all, how can one not feel that moved when you look at the Tanakh and then you look around and you see how Am Al is being given this opportunity, this reanimation this this revitalization this experience of seeing some of the tanakh prophecies coming alive um and you know and and i i find myself um really very swept up by that
0: beautiful i love how none of our points by the way overlap with each other (laughs) no i'm saying that in in an an amazing way right meaning They all are, they're, they're all very different pieces, and I'm sure that everybody who learns Tanakh has, uh, has, di- has different pieces that, that anchor them. I want to actually ask you, what is the most frequently asked question that you meet <laughs> in the Tanakh classroom?
1: I have to switch my uh, I know. pages. No, no, this one, this one, this one, I can do uh, uh, without looking because I, I really do get this question a lot, especially when I travel. Again, you know, in my classroom, probably the most frequent, frequent question is, "What pasuk did you say?" Right? Absolutely. Am I wrong? Right. I usually say every puzzle because I'm introducing it three times <laughs> before anyone can ask. But no, really, really the, the most frequent substantive question, I assume that that's I, what I did mean meant. that
0: kind, Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially when I travel is, um, but why do they sin so much? Hmm. Right? You know, there's this sense that the Tanakh is speaking to some kind of exemplary existence, you know, some kind of ideal. We're looking to create an ideal. I talked about it a little bit before, right? We're looking to create an ideal society. We're looking to create an ideal family. We're looking to create ideal relationships. We're looking to create an ideal relationship with God, right? And, and none of this is actually true. I mean, it's all true. Everything I said right now is true, but none of it is actually the story of the Tanakh. Which, by the way, I'm now going to answer um, the question that you that you were going to ask, which is the deepest point of comfort you take from Tanakh. And I'm going to mix these together. Okay, thank you. you. Which is that I really think that the point of Tanakh is not to say that one day we are going to have the ideal society, the ideal relationship with God the ideal community, the ideal family even. I don't think that that's what the Tanakh is saying. I think the Tanakh is saying something that I take actually a lot of, I think there's a lot of depth here, and I think that there's also a lot of comfort here. I also think there's a lot of honesty here, which is one of the things that I think is really magnificent about the Tanakh. And that is that the Tanakh is setting the bar very high. The Tanakh has very high expectations from us as individuals, as a community, as human beings who have the potential to reach something otherworldly, to reach something that seems to be theologically impossible, mm-hmm. right? I think the Tanakh has great respect for human beings in this regard and therefore sets the bar very, very high. But actually, one of the most important themes of the Tanakh is that human beings are fallible and human beings are basically creatures who are have lots of weaknesses. And eventually, even if we can reach some kind of an ideal, there are going to be fluctuations, right? There's going to be movements towards, movements away. There will be movements upward, and there will be a lot, a lot of downfalls. And so the other piece of the Tanakh is that even though God sets the bar very high and the Tanakh sets the bar very high for us as individuals and as a nation and as a community. I think there's a constant awareness of human failure and there are mechanisms that are set into place to enable us to rise again. And that's the story of the Tanakh. And that's the answer, I think, to the most frequently asked question, which is, why did we sin so much? Why, why is the Tanakh so filled with human foibles, with human fallibility, and with, and with human weakness? And that's the story of, I think, what Judaism really is. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful story. It's a story that is filled with both honesty and respect. Um, and, and, and a certain you know, awareness of, of what, you know, what the world is. I, in this regard, I would say that my favorite Tanakh story, even though it's not my favorite Tanakh story of all time. Yeah, you're, within, mixing
0: all, you're mixing a lot of questions into
1: one. Can I just finish that though? <laughs> okay, because I'll say a different thing when you ask me that I'm question. Just in just this regard, my favorite Tanakh story is the story of David. Because of course, the story of David is the story of a terrible, terrible downfall. Yeah. And yet, it believes in David's ability to eventually stumble back to his feet again and with a great, great deal of difficulty and, 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 and pain. And if you miss that story, you miss the greatness of Tanakh.
0: I mean, I think that that's, on the most basic level, why the Torah starts where it does. Meaning, it starts with the creation of the world, but it starts with with the first sin of Adam and Chava. Meaning, we're starting off at Telem Elohim, and then it, immediately it goes to a bummer, right? And I think that that's exactly the point. It's this build-up of, this is the human potential you have. We're going to create it. It's very picturesque. And then we're going to show you what happens in real time. And then we're going to show you how we slowly crawl our way back to Avraham. Meaning, I think that that's the arc, really of the first 11 the eleven Prakim of saber Breishit. So I, I totally agree with that. I think that that's very much right. A tanakh, even like Halakha later does as well, is aspirational essentially. And it's it's letting you know how, how high we can set the bar and also very clearly that we're not always gonna make it. And on an individual level, we have Adam and Chava. And then on a national level, we have Chete Egel. And, and I'll give a little spoiler for an a episode that's coming out in another two weeks. But uh, Leon Kass in his commentary says by Chet Egel, you thought I was going to say something else. No, I thought you were going to
1: say that Leanne agreed to come on for Chet Egel. I know, but he's not end. He he I might. know. Okay, we'll so, try I'm and sorry. get him
0: next time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he says it there that he thinks that it wasn't only important, but it was necessary for Am Israel to sin in the golden calf. It's like a very, very audacious comment. It needed to happen in the same way that I'm connecting this in the same way that Chet needed to. Uh, sorry that the that. Chetadam and needed to happen, also chetada needed to happen on a national level, meaning there needed to be that, you know, the the bar was set so high, almost too high, that then there was going to be the reality that takes place. And then after that, they'll crawl their way back, right? They'll create the mishkan in, the, in a different way, right? They're going to create a model that actually, actually works. So I think, I mean, I think that that comes through very strongly, what you said all, all throughout Tanakh. You know, I teach students who are a little bit younger, I think, no, we have overlap also of ages, but I've found very much that what's come up for me in the last two years of this question of what, what question is often asked is the question of, did it really happen like that? Uh, is this what really happened? And it's a question that comes up a lot in my classroom, because as I said before, I really and you do as well, teach sort of a lot of literary style of teaching. And, uh, and literary style of teaching doesn't necessarily care all that much about this question, okay? And there's, there's, there's a reason why this question comes up. It can come up in places like, you know, the Exodus from Egypt, right, which is its own sort of loaded question. And it can also come up in a smaller way of, well, the story is being told like this and make you lot to stare, but is that necessarily exactly how it played out? Uh, and well, if you're teaching it as a book and it has a written style, so then we have to also understand that sometimes with the written style, there's always gonna be a difference. You know, I always say to people, I could tell you about how my day was, right? I can also choose to tell you how my day was, from what point I want to start. I could start from what I ate for breakfast. I could start from, you know, where I, uh, who I sat with at at the lunch table. I could, I could tell you about my day in all different ways. And the Tanakh is like that as well. It, It chooses how, you know, how to tell the story. It doesn't, there are many ways one could tell a story, um, and so so this is a question that often comes up for some people with more of like an internal theological earthquake than others. Uh, and, and there are different ways I sort of approach it depending on who's asking how they're asking it. But I, I will say that uh, one of the strongest lessons that I always think about is the difference between something having a truth or something being true, meaning it is without doubt that everything in Tanakh, exactly the way it is written, holds boundless truth in it Uh, and whether or not the event happened if I went back in time thousands of years ago and I will look at the event and describe it exactly like that to me matters far less than what is the lesson what is the meaning that I sort of was able to take out from this story from the way or this narrative or from this however whatever is being brought in front of us or this poem uh, is far more meaningful than than the question of, did something happen the way it is? I'll just add one more piece, which is that that question also comes from a very, um, I would say, early Western, almost sort of, uh, yeah, Western way of thinking. We have a much more linear way of thinking that didn't occupy at all people's minds in the ancient worlds. People didn't care about being we, we have a, a value today to saying, I saw this event, I w- witnessed it, and I wrote it down exactly as it happened. And that wasn't a value in the same way in the ancient world. And and I believe that, you know, certainly the B'nai Adam who were experiencing it when they were initially receiving the Torah, and it's not necessarily as important or critical for the Tanakh per se to be a perfect eyewitness in the same way that we value that today. So those are that's a question that comes up for me a lot, uh, certainly with younger students, and my answer isn't always satisfactory to them.
1: <laughs> I would just add one point, which is that um, the Tanakh is interested in theology. Yes. It tells theology through the prism of history, but history is not primarily what the Tanakh is doing. And a good example of that is is Achav, right? who we know from external sources how powerful he was militarily, and from internal sources, we're much more focused on how uh, problematic his wife was, right? <laughs> of course, you know <laughs> that's what the talmud is more interested in, and 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 the theology of that, and how he was a rather weak figure mm-hmm. from a religious point of view, and he's you know sometimes pulled by Eliyahu, sometimes he's pulled by Isabel. but from a military viewpoint, right, what we know about him, you know, from the Kirch monolith, the, the fact that he contributed 2,000 chariots to the war effort against Shalmaneser III, that's 1,000 more chariots than any other of, you know, any other of the allies who, 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 who fought against him. That's something we just, the just kind of, you know, didn't bother telling us that. Yeah. So that's, that's just a good example of what the Tanakh is not trying to do, and I think that that really is 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 you know continuing your point.
0: So, if it's okay with you, I want to go to a little bit of a loaded question, okay? okay. Um, and I want to ask you about what feel the, was there is there a theological dilemma in Tanakh that you feel challenges you, whether in the way that Tanakh presents a certain topic or in actual theological idea that Tanakh itself reckons with? Is there something I'm sort of looking for that, a challenge point? for you when, you when you read or learn or teach?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's a macro and a micro, right? The macro question I think is really the, the, the basic Tanakh or human religious question, which is what does it even mean to have a relationship with God? I mean, that's what the entire Tanakh is about, right? And, and that is something that I think that all religious people struggle with. And, and you know, we read it, we see it, Moshe panim panim right, kashar yidaber ish el-rey-ehu, right, if it were not written, I could not say those words, right, God speaks to Moshe face-to-face like a person speaks to his friend, and that's a challenge, I mean, it's a challenge to teach what that means, it's a, ta- a challenge to, 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 to understand what that means, to try to somehow endeavor to experience that, but that's, that's a very general kind of answer, Uh, On a a more, you know, on a more specific answer, I think that, you know, there are certain Tanakh stories that I can't imagine that any person doesn't struggle with. And if they don't, then I think that they're not reading it correctly. And the best example of this is Akedah Yitzchak. We're getting there for those of you in my Wednesday morning class. Bezrat Hashem, Right. Okay, um, that I mean, what does it mean? What is God asking Abraham to do, and why does He ask him to do it if He doesn't really want him to do it, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, you know, I can give the entire array of answers that that we're going to find, and and we will do that right on our source sheets. But what I really want to say at the end of the day is is that that chapter is unsettling. It's unsettling, and I think that that might be the reason that we read it on Rosh Hashanah because it's not necessarily the, the most obvious chapter to read on, mm-hmm. on Rosh Hashanah. No. I might look for something, you know, that has more about you know, I don't know, tshuva or mm-hmm. or, or, or or something something different, right? But that, that I think the idea is to sort of throw us, right? It unsettles. It should be troubling. And and it remains troubling and it should remain troubling. That's what like I, I think that there is value in not always resolving all of our questions because ultimately we look at a world where human beings are are not resolving all of our theological questions. And you know, I mean that's something that I explore a lot when I talk about Echa in, in my book. Um and, and I think that on a narrative level. I feel it the most when I experience Akedah Yitzchak and when I, I walk with Avram uh, into that into that absurd uh, test
0: that he has to undergo. You know, it's interesting. I, I want to pick a little deeper at the the macro that you mentioned, which is this idea of like, what does it actually mean to have a relationship with God? So I've been putting together the Vayikra series, which I'm going to start recording next week. And... One of the ideas that a Kharuta and friend gave to me, she said, well, why don't you explore what it really means to meet God? And I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that for Vayikra. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in all the ways that Vayikra is suggesting to and I, I said, "I this feels like a little bit too audacious for me, but it's for that it's reason, meaning it's for yeah. that reason <laughs> that... By the way, the topic is caduceus in the details. Just giving a little spoiler there for what's coming up in Vayikra. Also but audacious. Also Kiddusha, audacious. Right? But I, I built yeah. now. I built the episodes. Yeah. I'm really excited. I didn't share oh, with you excellent. since we last spoke. But this idea, I, re, I was just speaking to a student about this, how there are two things that we really don't have, and nor do we really want to describe directly in words. One is... A relationship with God and one is our romantic love in our life like there are two things that are so deeply intimate to us that there's a reason why words shouldn't do them justice and why uh, even for example in Shira Shirim there's a lot of imagery that's used to describe it but there's no right it's, it's showing not telling because we don't really want to tell and so that's how I really think about all of those really anthropomorphic or what is Moshe and Hashem really doing we're not supposed to get it do you know meaning it's we don't want to get it because it, like all things we like to feel almost there because there's something much more thrilling and moving because when we have it and we can grasp it it doesn't have that mystique and so i feel like all of those all those psukim about a relationship with god are meant to be filled with mystique because if we really would get it it just it wouldn't move us in the same way. There's something about the fact that it's elusive that that keeps us on our on the edge of our seat. Uh, and so I also don't know. Of course, I don't know what it means. And I, I just today was editing the episode on Kitisa, and we really we tried to sort of talk about that question a little bit of all those 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 phrases that you just mentioned right now. Uh, and ultimately, you know, it's it's a big it's a big question. I guess I'll just add one. I think that there I think there are a lot of moral questions that come up today because a lot of things in Tanakh really really They don't jive well with a lot of people's current moral sense, current modern moral sensibilities. It doesn't mean that they're right. Moral sensibilities are just different (laughs) than what a lot of uh, Tanakh stories reflect. But for me, one of, uh, and I share this often when I teach, but one of the biggest dilemmas for me is really the concept of mida kinegiv mida, of measure for measure, as it's often translated, which I've heard explanations for how to mitigate this, but it's a really basic theology in all throughout Tanakh and and I often when I think about this topic or and I, I really started thinking about it very much after my father had passed away a number of years ago and I remember saying, you know, if I would say to you, I'll say, you know, in a class or if I would say to you, Well, clearly your you know, clearly your father got sick because he was a sinner, right? Like that would be a very, very, very unfortunate way to start a conversation with me, right? So I, I, I think that that's one of the many examples of things that are difficult for us to sort of digest in our modern conception. But to me, it's such a problem because it's so basic to the way that so many, so much of Tanakh functions, right? If you, you do bad, you're going to get bad. And I've heard approaches that try to say, well, this is true on a national level, but on an individual level, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. But there's a lot of stories about individuals in Tanakh who the, the narrative clearly frames it as they didn't do well, and so they received Bad. And so I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I would just say, as a bare bones answer, that's something to me that presents me with the greatest challenge, not on a personal daily level, but how to bridge. The what is often the message of a lot of, of narratives and, and texts in Tanakh with what would be acceptable to us today and the way that we would speak, right? We would never say that to somebody. Maybe the Tanakh is encouraging us to think like that, right? And to and to think introspectively when something really negative is happening. And uh, anyways, it's a topic that speaks a lot to me and I explored it with, with Tanya White in uh, in the series.
1: Yeah, I, I think the Tanakh is a little more subtle than, than that. First of all, remember that the entire story of Am El starts in Egypt for no apparent reason, which all the, I mean, all of the different parshanim search for a sin, right? So, is it Avram's sin? Because mm-hmm. in the bin of B'tarim, Avram is already told that Am Yisrael is going to start out in slavery. But, you know, I mean, the other possibility is that, it, it's not always this midah connected midah, this measure for measure. That sometimes there are other reasons that things happen and that bad things happen. And you know, Nechemal for example, explores at great length this idea that Am Yisrael has to start out its existence in slavery in order to create a moral foundation mm-hmm. for a nation that will always be concerned about the weaker elements in society. And the flip side, I think, is also true, which is that, let's say, you know, in the story of Yaakov, right, all of that, um, all of that deceit and, and, and trickery that's going on comes around very subtly. Because it's not, the Tanakh doesn't make this point of saying, you did X, you get Y, but rather that there's this kind of subtle weave, I think, that is often going on so i don't know i mean i don't i don 't find that as as glaring I mean, certainly there are situations and and in a lot of let's say the legal um, uh, sections <inaudible>
0: yeah. some big fundamental texts yeah. yeah, but when
1: we do actually go through it, for example, in Migilat Eicha, Echa is very very um, uh, has a very strong dialectic as yes. to whether or not this is something that is you know, um, uh, because of sins, or because of some elusive reason that we absolutely cannot figure out. And even if there are sins, they're not proportionate to the ultimate fate of Am Israel. And so, Echab, when it does deal with with theology, and you know, I would say Eov as well, mm-hmm. is is engaging in a much uh, more profound experience of. Um, of 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 theology, I'm not denying that there aren't sections in yeah, no, Tanakh. No, I that I are, agree with you that yeah. with
0: again we're not going to you know do a whole she'er. I mean, but I agree with you that within Tanakh there are different perspectives on this topic. Yeah, I've actually quoted you on echa before when I've taught this. I remember um, in your in your series of yeah, Tanakh yeah, exactly. I quoted you. Yeah. So. I, I agree with you that within Tanakh, there is a certain multiplicity of voices, but there's also a very strong strain of yeah. of this idea. So, but I agree with you. I, I that's what I'm saying. I don't. It's just not something that you know perplexes me or challenges me on a daily basis. But it's something I think about when I try and think about how to import what we're learning into our entire our, our regular lives. If I can move, I want to move to like a little bit of a lighter question. If that's okay with you um i had no answer to this question well, i had it right away i knew <laughs> you were gonna ask I, knew you would have it. I wanted to know yael what is a tanakh moment that makes you laugh or that you find humorous i had nothing i had nothing to write i couldn't think of anything i'm, I'm way too serious for my own good
1: so I had a couple, but but the uh, <laughs> the one that immediately came to mind is in uh, uh, Shmuel Olive Oh, Okay, okay. I you were gonna say <laughs> right? that.
0: So I was when, thinking I'm supposed to say this, but I don't think it's funny. I okay. I, I, I actually think it's it's
1: quite <laughs> hilarious. There's this moment when um, when Shaul Shaul went to find his his father's donkeys, right? And he can't find these donkeys, and he gives up, and he says, "You know what? Let's just go home. I don't want my father to be worried." And his his uh, servant, his boy, who doesn't get a name, says to him, no, 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 let's go find, uh, let's go find the Navi. And Shaul says, well, you know, I don't have anything to give to the Navi. I have no bread. We have no money. And the servant says, nope, no worries. I have all this stuff. The servant has everything that Shaul doesn't have. And there. are he, you know, they, they, they make their way towards the Navi, but they can't find him, right? Because, you know, Sho doesn't know exactly
0: how to find the Navi. Right? Yeah. He, yeah,
1: he doesn't really know, right? So it, as they're walking, they see these girls who are coming back from having drawn water, okay? So what does that mean? He sees girls coming from the well, it's his betrothal scene, right? He's right? supposed I to mean, get engaged, right? right now. He's supposed to get engaged. He sees these girls, right? So he turns to them and he says, Is there a prophet in town? And this is the answer of the girls, okay? Vataanena otama vatomarna, right? They answer him and they say, Ye shine le maher ata ear ki zeva kayom la amba bama ki vahema ma kintin su unoto, patermia le ha ha'bamata le ho, ki amad bao, ki uivarecha zeva ha yo halu ha kirurim vata alu, kioto ha yon Okay, then when I teach this, right, so by the time I get to the end, I say, like, what did that mean? Can anybody translate that? And the answer is no, because it's nonsensical, right? It actually means nothing. So the Gemara also picks up on it, and the Gemara says several things. Some of which I won't say. I have no interest in saying that women talk a lot. I'm not gonna <laughs> say that. But the, the 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 I think the the well-known answer of the Gemara is a kokach lama. Right? They were looking at oh he was so handsome. He was tall and and had this, you know, comportment of a king. And these girls see him, and for them, it's their betrothal scene, right? They're coming from the well. And and the uh, Barbonell actually describes that they're all talking over each other, right? right? It's a Everybody's talking it's a over a each other. Like, no, no, look at me, look at me, look at me. And what are they saying? They're saying absolutely nothing. And the Tanakh does, I think, a marvelous job of, of, of presenting this very um, lively, very. Um, Funny scene where all these girls are saying absolutely nothing, but they just don't want Shaul to leave. Like, yeah, I know he's right there. Just today, I saw him before. I, I think that he's doing that. No, don't worry. If you get there, you won't be too late. And you hear all these things that they're saying, and the the actual you know sort of ending of the scene is also funny, which is that the next pasuk is Vayaluhair. He actually doesn't respond to them, and so there's this sense that Shaul he misses his betrothal scene here, right? Or he is not, that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for the donkeys. He has a a very, very, you know, kind of tunnel vision going on here. It may also prepare us for something about, you know, Shaul's lack of, continuity his, he's he's not going to have the ability to sustain his dynasty maybe we're also being prepared for that here but that that's not so funny so i'm I'm going to leave that aside but i I think that the actual um the technique you're saying the technique the itself technique is, is, is great, great. it's right. just great and it's a great um it's a great moment in a classroom because you know, you said you're serious. I tend to be a little too serious. I'm always, I'm always amazed by you know my colleagues who can make jokes in front of you know, in, in classrooms. That's not my, uh, that's not my skill but um, but, I, but I do think that the Tanakh sometimes does it for us so that that's fun.
0: You know the same technique is also used in the book of Yonah, where we also have the multiplicity of voices of the sailors who ask like seven questions to youna at the same time and it oh, also yeah. the harshsh names speak about the fact that they were all asking at the same time and that's why it's like seven questions in a row but yeah. it's a similar technique but I, I have nothing to add to this I can I don't know I, I don't find myself <laughs> laughing over Tanakh it just it just <laughs> it just doesn't happen to me very often. There are things that I love uh, which maybe maybe I'll ask that meaning about a favorite a favorite parik or pasuk or maybe even a midrash that, that comes to mind something that you just like love do you want to answer first um, I could answer first yeah, I mean I think that uh, I don't I don't totally have a reason why but definitely a favorite parik of mine is is the second chapter of Shmot. I love the birth of Moshe Uh, I think that to me, it sort of like holds in it sort of like the secrets of everything else that comes after not just in the book of Schmote, but even broader than that. Uh, I love the appearance of all the women. Uh, I think that's also probably a favorite of mine. And I just think that it's one of the most masterfully constructed prakeem. It, I don't know, something about it. I don't have a reason why, but it really, really, really moves me. I did also spend a lot of time in it for my doctorate. So usually I have things you write in your doctorate, you hate later. Um, but I actually, <laughs> but I actually ended up liking that one in the long run. So uh, so I really I, I love, I love that and scene. Nice. And I love the division of sort of his birth and then his youth. And, you know, we're given the, the information is so paltry that we have about our biggest heroes. And so to me, it's just like it's that one peak we have into the background of Moshe. And I feel like it just really holds all the, the secrets that we'll need to know later on. Yeah. Do you want to respond to that, though? No, I
1: agree with you. I, lo- I mean, that was not the one that I picked, but yeah. it, uh, definitely Shmo Perak Bet is a magnificent Peric. I-, I think it also appeals to our literary interests. It yeah. has such a, um, such a wonderful structure that really so nicely reflects the meaning. So it's, it's also, uh, for me, it's a go-to Peric to try to demonstrate different literary techniques and how they... How form always reflects meaning, so that. I'm
0: trying to think, maybe I learned it with you. Maybe maybe we did that all those years be. ago, in the yeah. Tanakh program here. Um, that that's definitely a favorite, uh, a favorite parak. Uh, I definitely definitely my favorite section in all Tanakh is the first eleven chapters of Brashit by far. I, I also, it's for the same reason. Something fascinates me about feeling like I'm digging into like the most primal piece of things. And so to me, uh, I love teaching Brashid Aleph through Aleph. I think that it holds in it the keys to all of human functioning, including, as you said, all of our failings. Um, I To me, that's just, there is really nothing better for me than the first uh, 11 chapters of Sheet. And I couldn't. I couldn't think of one pasuk that I loved, and I, I knew I was going to regret that later because I know that I have, and I'm just not thinking about it right now. But I did think, in honor of Purim that's coming up, that the phrase "batil bashes is one of the most moving phrases to me this idea that well obviously literally right she got dressed up to have the appropriate audience with the king but the idea that like the clothing makes the person I'll swap out the man part the clothing uh, makes the person that she needed to assume an identity and so you know a little bit fake it till you make it uh, to me there's some just a real again, a real, like, essential teaching there about the fact that, A, we can transform ourselves um, when we need to. Like, we have that ability within us and that um, we all, we're all princesses, you know? I really, I have four daughters. I think I've said that 75 <laughs> times on the podcast. It may be a central feature of my life. It's so, about to
1: change in whatever way. <laughs> in whatever way, it's
0: about to change. Um So, uh so yeah, I just I this, to me because also I guess there's as a side topic, there are parts of me let us stare that I deeply struggle with in terms of like the broader story. But that to me more than Revachvat like that moment to me is is when a really, really steps it up and she becomes exactly who she needs to be in that right moment. So that, that stuck out of my mind because I'm teaching me let us stare right now, but I'm sure I'll go home later tonight and think of other other things but yeah I was curious what rises
1: to that royal stature especially in light of the fact that so many of the B'nai Rachel rip clothes instead of using clothes so Mm -hmm. she does something actually quite different than her than you know her colleagues and uh, and and like you said she steps into the role she says I'm going to use it for good Mm -hmm. the beauty and the regality so yeah that is a I think a remarkable moment what are yours yeah Okay, so it's really hard. It's like asking know, for a I favorite child, had like seven. right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, no. So I'll, I'll I'll just do one favorite parak yes. because, um, as I said, right now I'm really much more in the direction of biblical poetry than narrative. So, and and you know, don't take this really as favorite. I'm just gonna like you know just throw out a parak there, um, and that is uh, kufbet in tihilim. Oh, and for the I'm same on reason, that. are, are you? Right now?
0: Yeah. Oh, for, the, it. for yeah. yeah.
1: For the same reason that I said before, which That's is so the contemporary relevance mm-hmm. of it. You have this beginning section of the parak which is describing the horrors of some national calamity, mm-hmm. right? This, you know, description, it starts, of course, tefillah la'aniki right? this is something that we sing, right? It's the, the tefillah uh, where we're pouring out our hearts to God, and there's this description of Right, my life goes up in smoke, right? My 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 bones are being burned. Right. I mean, to me this is such twentieth century imagery that it's just it's it's hard for me not to feel that these descriptions relate to Things that 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 we are currently thinking about, but what's really remarkable, I wouldn't I wouldn't choose a parak about the Holocaust. Obviously, I'm going to say you're going I'm, down I'm a, far a too, very non you. No, but also it's it's really not my personality so much. I, I tend yeah. to, to to have a more cheery kind of uh, outlook. But I mean, you know, when we at,
0: schmooze, I like to say that she's the sunshine on the cloud. But yeah,
1: okay. And <laughs> as as we progress through the parak, all of a sudden there's this just. There's this 180-degree switch in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Ve'ata Hashem lam Teshev, V'zichachal which is a Pasuk that we also have at the end of Echa, right? But you got it forever. You're eternal. And therefore, you know, you, you, you can you can do anything. You can you can change things over an instant. And in the next Pasuk, we're, we, we went from 1945 to 1948 in the span of three years, right? Or two right? Suddenly, it's, atatakum, terachem tzion, v'yiru goyim et sheim right? The nations will see God, Kivanahashem tzion, because God built tzion, um, you know, ki hishkif mimarum kadcho lishmoa en kat asir, God is listening to the cries of the prisoners, it, To me, this is the, 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 the the breadth of 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 the history of the past hundred years and I read this and I think I don't know how did people understand this a hundred years ago and so and there are a lot of passages in Tanakh that I that I feel that about not just the one that I sort of jokingly talked about before when I was talking about sitting in traffic but so many I mean I remember when um when when we had the seventy f- fifth anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz right remember we had you know 40 heads of states that came to Israel. And uh, this was right before the, the outbreak of Corona. And I remember that as I, I, was, I was watching, it went on for like two, three hours. Did you see it? I remember, I think it was a Thursday afternoon because I was definitely cooking and crying and watching it, all of this happening at the same time. And I sent out, I remember on my family WhatsApp, I, I looked at this pasuk from Yeshayahu Parak Samech and the pasuk says... The pasuk says, "V'halchu elaych shchoach, b'nei maanayich." Right? Remember, the president of Germany was there as well. Right? All of the sons of those who tormented you will now come bowing before you. V'ishda chavu al kapot raglaych, kom Sorry, but the word Nazi is in there. I mean, I, I don't mean to get like like weird. Bible codes. But, Bible right, codes. Bible codes on you. But there is this <laughs> moment of, they will bow down on the ground, all of these people who who tormented you. the lach ir Hashem, Tzion Kedosh Israel, right? And, and they're going to call you the city of God, right? So there was this moment, and then I sent that pasuk out, and an hour later, Amit Segal sent it out also on his uh, you know, uh, WhatsApp group or whatever it was. So I said, oh... Baruch Shakivanti. But there was that sense that, you know, there, there, there are Psukim that are just sort of, you know, materializing. You know, ki ain be u, you know, this Pasuk that 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 Ravkuk loved to 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 cite from uh, from bet. These are moments in the Tanakh that that I find very moving. They're not necessarily my favorite sukim or my favorite Prakim, but they're ones that I find endlessly um, uh, laden with meaning.
0: Um, Can I just, I'm going to just jump in for a second because I just want to connect what you said now with your first answer Yeah, because they're, they're they're really the same, the same spectrum, right? What, what seems to move you the most is this, is the relevance and even the idea that I'm not even sure how they got it when it was first said because the relevance seems to echo so much stronger today. And it's really interesting because what seems to move you is how it connects to what's happening today. And then when I speak about Tanakh, I'd say that I love feeling like I'm doing like a deep dive into like the DNA meaning how it got started so it's like funny that we're putting ourselves like on different ends of the spectrum which is just which is cool it's nothing other than an observation
1: I will just make a further observation that when we talked about I I said maybe we should talk a little bit about archaeology and you weren't so interested in talking (laughs) about archaeology and I will say (laughs) that for me archaeology is the nexus between My two great loves, aside from my family, my family is my great love. But aside from that, my two great loves, which are Tanakh and, and Zionism, right? I am moved to live at a time that these two things can come together. You know, I think I'll tell you a great story. Right? So I think of this story of um, Eliezer Sukeinik, right? You know who Eliezer Sukeinik was? he's the professor of archaeology. He was famously the father of. Igal Yadin, right? That's probably his most famous uh, claim to fame. But actually, what I think he is uh, most famous for, what he should be most famous for, is that he was the first one to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so he was a professor of archaeology at Hebrew University, and he got notice that, you know, there was some antiquities dealer that had bought from some Bedouin uh, so from some Bedouin tribe, um, you know these these uh, three scrolls, and he was asked to come and look at them and see their veracity. And it was 1947. It was on the eve of, you know, it was it was November 1947 that he got this request, and he turned to his son Yigal Yadin, And Yigal Yadin famously writes in his journal, he said, "Well, I told him that." As a military man, I thought it was inadvisable. As a son, I thought it was inadvisable. But as an archaeologist, I don't know. I mean, it seemed pretty advisable. Anyway, of course, uh, Sukhenik does go down, or he does go to see these scrolls. And the day that he saw the scrolls was November 29th, 1947, which was the day of the UN partition vote. Mm -hmm. And he writes in his journal, he writes, these scrolls were put away On the eve of the loss of Jewish independence 2,000 years ago, and they were waiting for us, and they reemerged on the eve of the reassumption of Jewish nationhood on November 29th, 1947, you know, for the first time in almost 2,000 years a Jewish person saw these scrolls again and they were scrolls of Tanakh and they created this continuum. It was a continuum of our connection to the land and our connection to Tanakh and our connection to building nationhood in this land. So for me, that's a very symbolic story and it's also very emblematic of what what I'm looking for right now it may not be what I what I the only thing that I look for in Tanakh but when I do um, uh, teach these sections of Tanakh for me it's a very um, it's a very overarching experience it speaks to many different um, aspects of what I think is remarkable about being a Jew at this time
0: it's interesting I'm sort of doing a little bit of self analysis as you're speaking and I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking that it it I, I guess it rarely it doesn't make its way so much into what I teach, but it actually is a massive part of why I chose to live in this country. So I don't know I don't know why. I don't have an answer to that, but I'm thinking about how I remember that when I was in seminary for the year and we didn't. I didn't do so much Tanakh learning that year, to be quite honest. But one of the wonderful teachers that we had, I remember, we were on a tiul and this concept of like a Tanakh tiul, like I never, I never met this concept before in my life. I'd never really been in Israel before, and they, we, like, they stuffed all of us into this cave. It was probably one of the Berakah caves. I don't even remember anymore. And he had this like really beautiful, he still does, Rav Shinkalevsky, shout out if anyone here knows who he is, Uh, but he's a rabbi in Beit Shemesh, and he started reading in his really like, just really resounding voice of Maskila David, the Otobim Ratzvila of Mizmor 142, and this idea of, again, forget even all the words surrounding it, but David being in a cave, and I don't even remember what happened, I remember that we sang but it was that moment of connecting of connecting Tanakh to the reality we were living that, without a doubt, is actually one of the main reasons why it became clear to me very quickly in sort of one of my first encounters in Israel that this is where I clearly had to had to live and I would even say that where I eventually now live, and it seems we'll live, please God, for many coming years uh, that the the feeling that Tanakh is sort of just Springing forth from where I'm looking outside is undoubtedly one of the things that anchored me and drew me, and I mean, I would say even like eternally <laughs> bound me up with this place. So I, I agree with you in terms of how moving it is. For some reason, I'm I'm not sure why it makes it sort of it makes it less into into the ways that I teach. But I to me it was just one of the most powerful reasons why I was th- I could never be anywhere else. You know, I wanted to open up if anyone in the audience has any questions. If you don't, that's also right. We we can keep going forever, y'all and I. Really. <laughs> right. But we won't. We won't. Don't worry. We won't. We're we're gonna see. Understand. I'm jet
1: lagged, so for me, it's getting earlier. Right. <laughs> the, the rest of you. She's is getting just
0: away. getting going. <laughs> First of all, thank you. This is been awesome.
1: Um, a question that I have as somebody beginning to teach Tanakh myself: My students struggle a lot with now that they're finally reading the Psukim because they've never read them and they've been told stories and they don't know what's Peshat and what's Midrash. As they read the stories about these biblical heroes, they don't like them very much. My students especially struggle with Yaakov in a very real way. And to go back to your question, like the idea of modern morality, they're like, he's a terrible son. He's a terrible father. How do you deal with students who really Again, this modern morality question when Tanakh seems to disagree with their modern morality, and how do you tell them that their hero like relate their heroes back to them when their heroes seem so far from them?
0: That's yeah, excellent question. question. Yeah, you want, you want to start?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it I think is what I was trying to say before when I spoke about what I uh, what I think is really maybe the most asked question, right? So your question is subsumed under what I see as the most asked question, which is why so much sinning? Why so many things that seem to be deviating from the course that the Tanakh is is, is showing us? I mean, Yaakov, I think, has, you know, each story has to be learned in its own context. But I think the larger uh, answer to these questions is, is that the Tanakh is showing us human beings in all of their struggles, in all of their downfalls, and their sort of getting back to their feet again. Um, one of the things that we really see with Yaakov, and this speaks, to, I think, also something that we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, there's a very um, subtle um, uh, kind of straightening up of Yaakov, right? Yaakov goes from Yaakov to Yisrael, which is the Right. The twisted to the, to the bent, bent to, the to straight. straight. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the Tanakh does a very kind of, um, I think, a very beautiful job of showing how Yaakov's life uh, becomes a series not just of the things that, that, that he does wrong, but also the ways that, the, that his life is teaching him what he's doing wrong um so you know look i mean it's a it's it's not an easy question and, and part of i think the reason that we struggle with the question is because uh the midrashim often have simplified and and reduced some of our figures to simple good simple bad right so anyone who's good is all good and anyone who's bad is all bad and the tanakh doesn't do that and i think that that is in my mind that that speaks to the Tanakh's um, realization that our heroes need to be people who also stumble and also teach us the mechanisms for recovery from those stumbles so that 's the best I can do short of going into into the stories, but i I, I do think that that is the most important question, and that 's the question that really i was I was addressing before in a more broad sense
0: so it's when you asked that question, it brought me back to. Uh, I think it was, it was probably at this point four years ago, and I I don't really usually teach in like a seminary setting, but I was there, I was in one for a few months teaching and I taught Migilat Ruth and I failed until the end to convince them that Ruth and Boaz were were respect-worthy figures. And I had that same experience. I was I was horrified by my own failure. Meaning, I, I, I. We finished, and they were like, "Yeah, I don't know. It didn't really do anything for me. I really, I, I was, I was, I was. It, it, it sent me home thinking, uh, certainly about how I was teaching or what was happening in this interaction with the students. And it was like this really intimate setting. We sat around a table and. And so, first of all, I, I get it. Uh, I get that feeling. And I was a little bit traumatized myself by it. Um, and I might even say, because, you know, if I had to pick my, you know, favorite biblical protagonist, that they were up there. But I, I get it. And there's something also very upsetting uh, about that response. Um, I think that it just as a compliment to what Yael was saying now, which is that I think that not even connected to the Midrash, but I think sometimes we have to start off with speaking with students about what does it mean to be a hero meaning to go back to that fundamental question it's the same answer you gave but just sort of like framing it differently of a hero it, it, we tend to think of a hero as somebody who is perfected or and we, we like to pretend that people function that way um, but but nobody there are people that are born with greater potential than others or born with sort of capacities that are far beyond other people's potentials uh, whether their level of energy or how many things they could do with the same time, or or how you know how much they could think or or contemplate, um, or their spiritual potential of how close they could be to a world that you can't see but I think that first like we have to sort of unpack this question of like what does it mean to be a spiritual hero Tanakh is never going to present unless they're a flat character Tanakh is never going to present them as being someone who didn't have struggles whether within themselves or with other people so I think that like there has to be some sort of like ground rule setting not only about how what language do we use to speak about our you know biblical heroes which I think is an important conversation to have also many settings or to sort of set the ground rules of the kind of language that's appropriate not appropriate uh, which is a, a wide variety of language depending where we're teaching but I think also this question of like who are the people that you look up to even outside of Tanakh like let's start with that right and some people really are attracted to the perfect kind of figures I tend to find that largely as people get older they shy away from that and the people who sort of stick in their life longest as role models are people who they've they've seen struggle and they've seen them emerge from those struggles and come out uh, with new layers to humanity with uh, with new amounts of depth and and so that's not everybody it's certainly not going to speak to every you know high school 18 year old but I think that I would sort of like try and unpack some of those basic questions with them before even getting to the actual text we have no perfect biblical figure yeah no one not one no one unless unless they're not really known like you know he's perfect but (laughs) i'll
1: say he's shy right he's shy uh, never sinned okay so you know that's that's,
0: right i'm just i'm just no that's my point my point is is that they're only perfect if we see very little yeah yeah, exactly the second you're going to see more of somebody you're going to see that they have they have freckles you know yeah as, I especially like i think
1: i think the family thing is also a really interesting kind of you know we talk about it let's say not perfect in terms of sinning and not perfect in terms of their relationship with god not perfect in terms of their relationship to the to the nation but i think this idea family's complicated right and you I know i will you, by the way yeah. not
0: not just to um self promote both of us but that was a great episode we did on sisters on uh, rachel mm-hmm. and leah we did for the brachiah mm-hmm. which by the way the brachiah series was Okay, I'm not going to say picking a favorite child, but I love that one so but, but you have to
1: pick a favorite episode
0: in the I can no, I can by the way I totally yeah. can, but I won't do it in public so um, <laughs> but but you spoke to that really well, so I also want to just reference anyone who's going to be listening to this at home that that idea about imperfect within the family and struggling with family which Tarah is so good at bringing to the fore uh, we really unpacked a lot of that
1: see I think what in the end what's beautiful about all of this is that so many of the struggles that we have today, we can find them in, in the Tanakh. And you know, you look at the fact that you know that that mo- the Avot we're dealing with how to pass on values to the next generation, right? So we sort of think we invented that one, right? Like every generation thinks that they invented that one, right? You know, like oh, there's never been a generation like today with kids who have you know who have, who a- have a- left fence. the path of their parents. Right. Oh, right right except that there's been every single generation <laughs> until today right i mean that's that is it's part of the story of humankind is that we are struggling to to have to have an ideal life in a in a in a world where we're not ideal right and i think that that is a very i think it's very valuable to me it speaks to Uh, the honesty of Tanakh and the genuineness of what the Tanakh is trying to teach us. And
0: which, by the way, is one of the main reasons why I think people didn't learn it for many, 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 many years. Because Tanakh, certainly in a very difficult world of Galut, it was much easier just to reference it as Thrups who came through the Gemara, uh, because Tanakh presents us with, with a much messier reality than, I think, up until pretty recent history, People wanted to really see up close, and I think that that's that's a big piece of it. It's we we got very used to the prism of of halacha, midrash halacha, and and uh, that didn't necessarily pick out easy things over hard things, but you didn't have to reckon with with like these moral questions and the narrative in the same way. And I think that we are you know the past few generations. I'm I'm indebted to all those people who started doing that. I think really picked up that that quest, and to try and make meaning out of really messy, messy situations. And I think that it's something that is is renewed, not new, but renewed in the world. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's tour learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners you can stream and download these episodes on spotify itunes google Podcasts, soundcloud and matan's website don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il that's podcast at matan.org.il thanks for listening everyone